I think we've gone through the hype cycle. As you say, there's been a number of failures, probably more in the last two years than in even more recently. What we have to see really for digital health to start growing again is that final piece of the puzzle to be solved. So that reimbursement, the commercial part of the business of trying to get payers starting to pay for some of these digital technologies. Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, challenges, and victories in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Good morning, everyone. This is another fantastic episode of Care Captains. Uh, today, I'm delighted to have Tony Keating on the show. Good morning, Tony. How are you? Uh, well, thanks, Norbert. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming. And Tony, you have uh, recently finished up Rezep's acquisition with Pfizer, and uh, you have been um, on a fantastic journey building this awesome digital health company. My question would be, how did you end up running Rezep? What's your main career trajectory? That's a great question, Norbert. I think, as with many entrepreneurs, I had a very varied background. I started off, I grew up here in Brisbane, Australia, a long way away from the rest of the world. Did a master's and a PhD in mechanical engineering. Um, so it was very technical from day one. Uh, did a lot of software development as part of my PhD. When I finished my PhD, was had the off- opportunity to move to the US and take a postdoc research position in the US. And so I moved to the US, worked as a postdoc researcher in a field called computational fluid dynamics, so a long way away from uh, where ResApp ended up in. And then about two years into my research career, I realized that while it was all good doing research and getting published papers, what really excited me was the commercialization, the translation of that research from the universities or from uh, academia to the real world and seeing the impact that research could have on the real world. And so um, after my postdoc, I joined a startup company uh, out of Boston that was spun out of MIT. Again, in my PhD area of research, computational fluid dynamics. Uh, so again, very unrelated to healthcare at that stage. Uh, and I worked for them for, for a number of years. Uh, and so we saw that startup grow. Um, my role was initially in the research side, but I guess what happened was that you know the salespeople saw that I was someone from the research side who could talk to customers. Uh, and so I spent a long, lot of my hours uh, talking to customers about the latest and greatest from our research in our research labs in the startup company. And so you know, that just grew my interest further in the commercialization of technology and how to really get technology, solve real-world problems with technology. That, I guess, furthered my interest in that. So after about seven years in the US, we decided to move back to Australia. And I was very fortunate to join a company called UniQuest. Uh, and UniQuest is you know, sort of one of the world's leading companies that takes university technology and spins it out, licenses it out, and gets it out into the real world. Uh, And so I had the pleasure of walking around a university looking for cool ideas that I thought had great commercial application, uh, and then working with professors, with researchers to take those technologies out into the world, find partners, find funders, find licensees, find partners to, to really take that technology forward. And as part of that, I, you know, one of the strengths at the University of Queensland, which is the, the university where I was based, was in medtech. 
uh, and I worked very closely with a number of professors who were very, I guess, deeply integrated into medtech uh, and had some really interesting medtech ideas. Uh, some examples were that the University of Queensland actually licensed algorithms that were in the majority of MRI machines globally. Uh, and so my sort of exposure to medtech came through that, and I got really excited about the opportunities that medtech and in particular digital health. So as part of that journey, I, I met with a professor, Udanta Abaratni at the University of Queensland, and he had this wild idea that we could take the sound of somebody's cough, use algorithms to analyze that sound, and pull out what's going on inside the lungs. Uh, and so, you know, this was probably 10, 12 years ago now, and, and no one had ever thought of this. Uh, and I think a lot of people didn't think it was possible. And so I worked with the professor. He managed to get a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to explore this idea. And we got some great results. We got some great clinical trial results from that idea and from that formed ResApp. So we spun ResApp out of the out of the university around eight, nine years ago now. Uh, and I decided that this was something I, I really believed in. It was a great opportunity to take a very innovative global technology out of the university and into real world. And so, yes, for the last eight years, I, I ran ResApp Health. We did a number of things from clinical trials to regulatory approvals to partnerships with Global Pharma. And then, as you said, ultimately acquisition by Pfizer uh, roughly 12 months ago. What a journey. Thanks for guiding us through. And before going into ResApp, I would like to stay on that topic that uh, you mentioned that you saw many, many different ideas in the university and you had a chance to um, commercialize them, potentially spun them out at, at UniQuest. What, what makes a good idea, which uh, comes from the laboratory, comes from research, but has also a good commercial foothold? What, what's your take on this, Tony? Yeah, look, I, th I think there's some really key factors there that are important. The one thing that I guess, was, is really drilled into us as being here in Australia is that it needs to be global. It needs to be an idea that's going to have a global impact. A small technology coming out of a university uh, in Australia or Germany or, or somewhere that's not a big US university really needs to have that spark of a unique global market. And so that's really the, the first thing that we have, we looked at. Does this play a very large role or can this play a very large role on a global scale? Uh, and so that was, I guess, one of the keys. The second is, you know, we are doing things when we're looking from the university out a little bit backwards, right? I mean, you do a lot of startups, a lot of accelerators and things like that talk about the opposite program, right? Where you go out and look for a problem and then you solve it. The university sort of space, the commercialization space is, is the reverse of that. We're doing a lot of technology push. Uh, and so we have to be very careful that we're just not pushing technology that is cool, you know, is a new way of doing something. It needs to solve a customer's problem. Uh, and so we really need to make sure that that problem is there. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time early looking for problems where the technology can solve it. I really agree with this point when you said it needs to solve a problem and not just only pushing cool technologies. And uh, coming to ResApp, I think it really solved the problem. And how I understood ResApp's value proposition is that you take your iPhone, you cough into it, and the smart application and the various algorithms will be able to diagnose various respiratory diseases. I'm pretty sure you can explain it better, Tony. So what does, what did ResApp do? Yeah, you're right. I, the, the basic premise of ResApp was that a cough sound contained information about what's going on inside your lungs. And that really tells us about a particular disease it might have. 
the original work, the original work funded by the Gates Foundation, was all about pneumonia. Uh, pneumonia kills just under a million kids every year, especially in the developing world. And so a way of low-cost diagnosing those patients, those children, so that they can be treated quicker, it was something that was very um, near to our hearts when we started Rezap. So that, that's the technology. The technology is cough sound to a diagnosis. But we needed to make sure that, that there was that route to market, the way to get this into people's hands and that it really solved the problem. And this was about seven or eight years ago. And the initial work done that the professor did with the Gates grant was using very expensive microphones, laptop computers to do all of the work. What we realized was that we now all had a smartphone in our pocket. And we went and ran some tests and we actually found that the smartphone in your pocket had a microphone that was just as good as the microphones uh, that were used by the professor, very expensive musician microphones uh, in the early research. So that allowed us to translate the research from you know, a clunky laptop, a external microphone, USB cables, et cetera, to a smartphone. And so that was the first real big step forward for the ResApp technology. And this was pre-founding of ResApp. This is still at the university. The second really big step forward that we had was the realization that telehealth was starting to take off. And so this was seven or eight years ago, pre-COVID, where we were starting to see the infancy of people seeing doctors via video links, via teleconferences. Uh, and so what we saw there was that a doctor didn't have the ability to use the standard tools that they used every day to evaluate a patient. So you know, you're going to a doctor's surgery today. They talk to you about whether you've got a cough, et cetera, and they'll use a stethoscope. They'll use a stethoscope to listen to your chest, to your back, to hear your breathing through a stethoscope. In a telehealth consultation, that wasn't available. Um, there were some solutions where you'd use a Bluetooth stethoscope, very expensive, complex technology. But instead, now we had that way of giving that doctor the ability to evaluate the patient remotely. Uh, and we thought that's a problem. That's something we can we can provide to doctors to solve the problem that they just can't evaluate these patients who they're seeing via a video link today. I would like to come back to the first point when you said uh, that you won this research grant um, with the Gates Foundation and um, you started with very expensive instruments here. How do you actually link the sound to the various lung respiratory diseases? So for me, it's always a magic that you just uh, translate the sound uh, into a kind of like disease prognosis. Can you shed some light on this um, underlying uh, magic, please? Yeah, sure. So like magic, but it's not magic, obviously. Um, yeah, we use artificial intelligence, machine learning, to analyze the, the cough sounds and match those to diseases. If you actually step back and look at it from a clinical perspective, each of those different diseases, so things like pneumonia, asthma, COPD, they all affect the lungs in different ways. So pneumonia, you get fluid buildup in the lungs. Asthma, you get a tightening of the airways. And those different ways of affecting the lungs affects the sound in the lungs. And that's why a doctor uses a stethoscope to listen. So they're listening for crackles or wheeze. Uh, which are sound indications of those different diseases. I guess what was unique was we were using the cough sound to extract those same indications. So what we have is we recorded a large number of patients um, with confirmed diagnosis. So we had hundreds of patients with pneumonia, hundreds of patients with asthma, hundreds of patients with COPD. And then we used our machine learning AI technology to crunch through those patients and look for signatures that match. So we found particular signatures 
that matched for pneumonia. And we were able to diagnose pneumonia from the cough sounds at sensitivity and specificity at accuracy rates of around 90%. And so similarly with asthma and COPD, using similar machine learning algorithms, looking at for signatures in those sounds, matching those two diseases. How I could imagine that, that you run a big clinical trial when I went into my GP and um, I came with symptoms, the GP uh, would have asked me, can I please record your uh, cough as well? Because we have a clinical trial running here, what we will be later analyzing. So the underlying question is that how did you end up running all these interesting clinical trials, Tony? So we formed very tight partnerships with clinicians. So as you can imagine, running clinical trials in an acute setting such as this. So here we have a patient who's, who's sick, right, who's presenting with symptoms. They want to get better as quickly as possible. We don't want to take up a lot of time. So we developed some really strong partnerships with doctors here in Perth, Australia. Uh, we developed partnerships with some doctors in Massachusetts, in the US, in Cleveland Clinic, in Texas Children's Hospital. And effectively, we ran clinical studies where patients who presented to the emergency department were screened in for our study. We recorded their cough sounds, and then we got out of the way. And then we let the treating team do what they needed to do to diagnose and treat the patient. We then had clinical adjudicators go in and evaluate those patients so from the medical records, from the x-rays, from the blood tests, etc., we had them finalize a final diagnosis of the disease, whether it was pneumonia or asthma or COPD. And then we created a, that large data set from those clinical trials. So some very expensive, very large clinical studies, thousands of patients, but that formed the database for which we could train our algorithms and also test our algorithms. Fantastic. And I think you were and are one of the applications uh, which have EU clearance, regulatory clearance mark. You also cleared in Australia. I don't remember whether you also got clearance in FDA. How did you convince the regulators that this um, unique algorithm works and then you are able to make the diagnosis? This is a really interesting question. And you know, it was something when we started the company seven or eight years ago, no one had done before. So th there are very few... AI algorithms, very few algorithms in general, had gotten regulatory approval for diagnosis of disease. Uh, and so we had to take the path that many medtech companies have to take the path in the diagnostic company and run clinical studies, run prospective double-blind clinical studies, large-scale studies, to prove that the algorithms worked. So after we were finished training our algorithms, what we did was we locked them. So we locked them at a point in time and then tested them. So then we recruited another thousand, two thousand, five thousand patients and tested those algorithms on those new unseen patients and provided sensitivity specificity data to the FDA, to the European regulators, to the TJ here in Australia. And we was able to get approvals for those algorithms. Um, so we managed to get TGA and CE mark approvals as a class two medical device uh, for our product Resap DX, which is the diagnosis product. Uh, and then we also got FDA approval for our sleep product. So our sleep product looked at snoring and breathing sounds. So again, similar to cough sounds, but snoring and breathing sounds um, to diagnose sleep apnea or screen for sleep apnea. And so, yeah, we managed to build the database, build the, the evidence that was required to get those approvals. Uh, and we're very proud of those achievements. Uh, as I said, very few digital health companies had class two medical device approvals uh, when we managed to get them. 
What an impressive way of dealing with very difficult to convince regulators. I think their job is to be really gatekeepers, making sure that all these applications are safe and definitely you made it. I think another uh, main barrier for you to get to the market is the distribution channel, that how do you make these algorithms available to large number of patients? And you mentioned here the telemedicine push. So how did you end up partnering with these various companies who provide these telemedicine distribution? Uh, network, so to say. Yeah, that's true. So when we started ResApp, one of the things that I always used to say was, you know, a direct-to-consumer diagnosis for an acute disease such as pneumonia or asthma is, is going to be very, very difficult by yourself. Um, you know, it, we, we were never going to be in a position where we could buy Super Bowl ads to get this technology in front of millions of people that we, we, we thought it needed. This was really about a scale business. This wasn't going to be selling one test for... $500. This was all about selling one test for $5 or selling a million tests for $5. Uh, and so that really wasn't an option going direct to consumers. So as, as you said, our, in, our business model was finding partners. And so the telehealth companies were just an ideal partner. They had hundreds of thousands of patients. They had a direct route to market through those telehealth partners uh, and we were solving a problem for them. Um, but they, their doctors just couldn't evaluate these patients accurately. Um, accurately. And so, uh, again, like with the regulators, we had to build the evidence base. Um, so we built a significant base of evidence, published papers, uh, we had key opinion leaders talk about our technology, and we managed to secure some great partnerships. So in Europe, we, we worked with Medgate in Switzerland, one of the leading te telehealth providers in Switzerland, and rolled out the technology on Medgate's platform. Uh, and had some really great feedback about the, the use. Uh, here in Australia, we, we partner with Doctors on Demand, uh, CoView, Phoenix Health, a number of telehealth providers here in Australia. We partner with Allo Doctor in Indonesia, um, which is one of the largest telehealth providers in Southeast Asia. So we had a lot of really good success there, and it was by far the best application. We solved the problem, and we had a route to market that was you know, relatively low cost for us. Um, yeah, we didn't have to have sales people knocking on every doctor's door. Uh, again, single point of entry that then branched out to, to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of patients. And then COVID-19 came. I would guess that probably it accelerated uh, the need for ResEP Health and uh, for telemedicine. So how did you um, live through this uh, two, three very demanding and challenging uh, years, Tony? Yeah, so COVID-19 obviously was very unexpected for us as it was for everybody. Our first goal was our staff and our employees and making sure that everybody was safe and healthy. A few of us had actually been in China in January of that year. So you know, we had to make sure that, that everyone was safe. And then we started to operate again. And so there were really two accelerants that happened due to COVID-19. The first was, as you mentioned, the telehealth angle. What we saw was an explosion in telehealth. That was both good and bad for us. So it was good for us in that, you know, telehealth, I, I wasn't having to explain telehealth to anybody anymore. It was clearly top of mind and our telehealth partners were doing more and more consultations. I guess from a negative perspective, it also was challenging in that telehealth companies were really just trying to roll out and service as many patients as they could. Uh, so new technology wasn't really on their radar as such. Uh, and so... I guess it was you know, working for and against us, uh, the boom in telehealth due to COVID-19. Uh, the second thing that COVID-19 brought about, uh, I think, was the willingness of people to 
test themselves at home. Um, so, you know, we saw the rapid rollout of rapid antigen testing. Uh, we saw the rapid rollout of, of just diagnostic testing in general and people understanding that, you know, a diagnostic test can be useful in an acute setting. Uh, and so that that was really beneficial, and I think that will be beneficial as we see a lot of digital health diagnostics and other diagnostics now start to enter the home. We've always talked about a lab in the home, you know, having a, a lab on a chip sitting in your bathroom cabinet that you test yourself. I think we're much closer to that now that everyone, that COVID-19 is somewhat normalized self-testing for some of these diseases. So that that's been really beneficial as well. And then I guess, you know, finally, we, we did set about a research project uh, to look for cough signatures that were associated with COVID-19. It was a relatively low burn um, research program, project, um, but, you know, we had some great success there as well. And looking back, this is definitely a successful journey since uh, Rezept was acquired by Pfizer. But before we come to that point, can you guide us through that? What will these pivotal challenges, what you live through in this uh, eight, 10 years of the company's lifespan? You as a CEO, I'm pretty sure you had many sleep, sleepless nights. So can you vividly remember these uh, moments which uh, were really challenging for you and for your team? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think startups are always a exercise in joy and complete despair. Uh, and, there, and there's definitely were times of complete despair during those eight years of, of ResApp. Getting FDA approvals, getting TGA marks and CE marks, getting partnerships with people like AstraZeneca, great moments of joy for myself and for the rest of the team. Uh, really, really exciting. But then we had cases where you know, we'd run clinical studies. You know, we had some really great successful clinical studies in Australia. And then we tried to translate those to the US and the results came back nowhere near as good as we expected. And so we, we had some real big challenges around why that was happening. And Resap was also at, at that time, very early, a, a publicly listed company. Uh, and so we had to very quickly understand what went wrong in those clinical studies, how to fix what went wrong and how to move forward. And I think that's probably one of the things when you know startups hit roadblocks. Um, if you don't go through that process and, and find out what's wrong as, as quickly as you can, work out how to fix it and then move forward, then you can be really stuck in the mud. Uh, and so you know, clinical trials for us were, were always very challenging. We had a couple of instances where the clinical trials just did not work as we expected them, and we had to very quickly work out. I can tell you, I delved through the data myself to be confident that we understood what went wrong uh, and that we could fix it in the next time around. And once we got confident that we could fix it the next time around, everyone was aligned to moving forward and, and repeating the study with those fixes and making sure we were right. So there was that, there was FDA. We had an FDA not back. And again, it was about going in, looking very critically at what we'd done, understanding what we'd done understanding where the FDA was looking at it and then looking at was there a path forward. And we were very fortunate in, in all those cases, in clinical trials, in FDA knockbacks, we always had a path forward. We always saw what the other party wanted, what the FDA wanted or where the clinical trial fell down. And we saw that path forward. We had some great team who could find out and work out the path forward and we then executed on that. Did you ever feel that you will not make it to the next stage? For times, yes, absolutely. 
there were times I remember being holed up in a room in Boston uh, where we'd run our US clinical study, huddled with a small team of people who were in, in the US with me on the phone to, a, to the team back in Australia and thinking, this is close to the end here. Um, we need to work out what's wrong very, very quickly here or we're done. Um, and so, you know, fortunately, th- there, was, there was problems that we saw that we could overcome. But yes, certainly there were times where we thought this is the end. What kept you going these uh, very difficult moments? <sighs> that's, a, that's a good question. Probably personal belief in that I really believed that this technology worked. I really believed that this technology could make a big difference in people's lives. And then I think the third thing was the, the team around me. And, and we were always a very small team, even at ResApps. I think we were... 15, 20 people, everyone was aligned, not to their particular area, not to I'm aligned to getting this particular application the best they can. I'm, I'm aligned to get this particular clinical trial working. They were aligned to the mission. They were aligned to ResApp is going to commercialize this technology and it's going to make a difference in people's lives. And that complete alignment of the team, and that made the difference. Awesome. This commitment, the passion definitely comes through. I envisioned in my eyes that you are sitting in a dark room, you are going through on the data, you have online, the entire team is there, and then uh, you make it by the morning uh, when you need to provide the, the path ahead. Fantastic. Coming back a little bit to another uh, major milestone, what I think uh, Rezab did, like not many other companies did, going public. Uh, I think you were listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. How did you go public, Tony? Yes, yeah, so we went public very, very early. Um, so within about within about six months of spinning the company out of the university, um, we had the opportunity to to list on the Australian Stock Exchange. The Australian Stock Exchange is, is fairly unique in, in that it is quite receptive to early stage biotech and medtech um, companies, uh, similarly to with mining companies. So you know, Australia is is well known for its its small cap mining space. We're also fairly well known for its small cap biotech space. So the opportunity was there, as in all cases when you're in a startup company, the opportunity, the capital, if the capital is there, you go towards that capital. And so that was the case. We were at the early stage of digital health. So again, seven, eight years ago, there were very few players in in the digital health space. And so we sort of fell through the cracks of traditional venture capital funding, at least in Australia. So there are a lot of venture capitals, venture capital funds working in technology, and there are a lot of venture capital firms working in biotech. There's very few people working in the digital health space. And so that in one way pushed us towards the, the ASX. And the ASX was also um, great in that it gave us a lot of credibility. I mean, from day one, we had audited financials. We had quarterly reporting on cash flow. Uh, we always had public disclosure requirements. Um, and so you know, it gave us a lot of credibility and a lot of uh, ability to get in front of great partners that we did. So it was as circumstances, but it was also very beneficial for the company to have all of those processes around corporate governance, financial from day one. Didn't it mean too much bureaucratic burden for you on reporting, maybe talking to investors? Didn't it take too much time um, from you focusing on the team, focusing on the technology? What what were the downsides of this um, ASX listing? Yeah, look, I think that that was definitely one of the downsides was the the amount of time that I personally had to take as, as CEO to talk to the market, to inform the market. 
you know, luckily we had board members and you know, one of the co-founders, Brian Liebman. Brian was an investor relations professional, but also co-founder of the company. Uh, so Brian was was great at helping me work that investor relations angle, which was very useful. But yes, you're right. Yeah, the the burden, the additional time that I had to spend doing that was, was substantial. The other, I guess, challenge of doing things in the public space is you know the requirements to disclose. And so we had to disclose partnerships, early stage research, et cetera. And so that was something that from a confidentiality, from a commercial perspective was quite difficult. I'm pretty sure it was difficult, but as you said, it also gave you the angle that you became really credible with the regulatory clearances, with all these high-level partnerships um, and um, clinical trials, which which leads me to the question that you started this journey around 2014, 2015. Digital health, I think, became a hype. Uh, many companies failed. Uh, not so many became successful. So how do you see these trends uh, of digital health? Is this a hype or it's here? to remain and here to stay? I think we've gone through the hype cycle. As you say, there's been a number of failures, probably more in the last two years than in even more recently. I think what we've seen is a focus again on solving the problem, having the clinical evidence, and I guess finally you know, solving the reimbursement piece. That's really, as I see it, probably one of the remaining challenges with digital health is that We've got a lot of digital health technologies that are cool, that are great new innovations. You then start with those, you then whittle down the ones that actually solve real problem in the healthcare system, which you know brings that funnel down pretty dramatically. And then finally, if you, if you look at the final step, and it's, uh, is there someone willing to pay at the other end? Uh, and that whittles the funnel even further at the moment. And I think that what we'll see, what we have to see really for digital health to start growing again is that final piece of the puzzle to be solved. So that reimbursement, the commercial part of the business of trying to get payers starting to pay for some of these digital technologies. You have been operating in so many markets. Did you see any market which was maybe more open for giving uh, reimbursement for novel digital solutions, maybe a model which worked much better than all the others? Most markets are still looking for a solution here. The US, for example, is... There are a number of activities going on in the US trying to pursue reimbursement for digital technologies. It's a slow process and will continue to be a slow process. But obviously, when that happens, that will open the market in a big, big way for digital health. Uh, you know, some of the smaller markets, Germany, for example, has a relatively good process, although I believe recently there's been some issues with the with the DIGA process. And so we've, we've seen it sort of cut back a little bit. The markets where it works today are ones where, the, where patients are paying themselves. So the self-pay where there are people willing to pay for digital health out of their own pocket. Those are the areas where we're seeing traction in digital health. So things like some of the chronic disease management tools where people can self-manage their chronic disease, those are the areas where we're seeing some sort of commercial traction. Nowhere near what I think we will see once we get reimbursement happening, but those people paying out of pocket is where the, the commercial gold is today. Cannot agree with you more. I think super good summary. 
And then uh, coming to the um, exit, uh, uh, Pfizer, I think, uh, acquired Rezep in 2022 for more than $100 million, if I'm not mistaken, upfront cash. How could we envision this journey? Was the phone rung? And Tony, would you like to sell the company for us? What can you share about uh, uh, this uh, deal, Tony? Yeah, we didn't have a formal partnership with Pfizer uh, prior to the acquisition. Uh, we actually had partnerships with you know, AstraZeneca um, with Janssen, a J and J company as well. Prior to that, but you know, we'd met with the Pfizer people, with in particular the research and development people, probably five or six years ago, and had continued in, in continuous contact since then. Um, we'd you know shared data with them. We'd talked about different things. I'd visited them multiple times in Boston, uh, which is where the R and D team was based, and then effectively. Not quite a phone call to say, hey, would you like to sell to us? We started to talk about a partnership. Uh, so Rezap and Pfizer were starting to talk about a partnership around a number of avenues. I don't really think I can talk too much about those. But you know, we started to talk about a partnership and eventually it became clear that Pfizer wanted to make an acquisition offer to the company. So my read of the situation was that they'd seen our people that really liked our people and so that they wanted to, to acquire us for our people and our technology. We made some, as I said, we were one of the groundbreaking digital health companies, um, especially ex-US, not, not in the US. And so effectively Pfizer, during partnership discussions, uh, decided to make an offer to the board. Uh, and as and again, as a public company, the board had certain requirements um, and certain responsibilities around an offer made, made by an external party, party to acquire the company. So... You know, we ended up getting counsel and et cetera, um, and, and eventually uh, the Pfizer offer was for $180 million Australian dollars to acquire the company. Uh, the board then took that offer to shareholders. Uh, shareholders accepted that offer, and we were acquired by Pfizer. Sounds so easy, but uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure you had also many sleepless nights uh, during this um, uh, process. And I was just wondering that um, how did you feel during this process? I'm pretty sure you couldn't um, uh, talk um, every details uh, through with your entire team. There were a small um, set of colleagues uh, who were involved. So how did this uh, entire acquisition uh, impact your your personal life and, of course, your uh, dedication to the company, what you put in in the last uh, eight to ten years, Tony? Yeah, exactly. So with, during that acquisition period, I effectively shielded the rest of the company from the, all of the acquisition work. We, again, we're a small team, 15, 20 people. And so we were pursuing some fairly large deals. We were pursuing some fairly intensive R&D programs at the same time. And we, we definitely didn't want to interrupt that work while this acquisition was going on because you know we didn't know. We didn't know if Pfizer would complete the acquisition. We didn't know if shareholders would agree to the acquisition. Uh, and so I, I shielded the rest of the team. So I effectively... Um, pushed a lot of the work that I was doing leading that R&D or leading those deals to my executive team. And I was very thankful for, for my executive team that they really took the reins and were able to take over a lot of the running of the business during the acquisition. So that, so that let me take the responsibility, but also I guess the stress of, of managing that acquisition and making sure that acquisition um, was the best acquisition possible for our shareholders. And so that was definitely a challenging time personally and also the challenging time from a personal perspective of whether or not personally I wanted to sell the company. Not my decision in the end, it was our shareholders' decision, 
Um, but you know, I, I very quickly realized that the where we were at as a company, uh, ResApp was a company that had done some some great things, got some great approvals, um, done some great partnerships, but really needed to step up in a big way and to make the impact that we really wanted to make. Uh, and so that was either going to require a significant amount of capital or an acquisition by someone like Pfizer who had the reach, the capital, the expertise to make an impact uh, with our technology. In general, I, I was quite supportive of the acquisition and you know, we, we were excited about what the future would bring uh, with Pfizer as owners. Why, why do you think Rezep was uh, so attractive to Pfizer? Was it the technology? Was it uh, that you reach patients directly, maybe using the remote uh, diagnosis in, in clinical trials? What do you think, uh, what were these uh, major drivers uh, for them to be uh, seriously interested about uh, Rezep? So I, I obviously don't have 100% clarity on that right i mean I, i i can i can talk about what i believe um and so my ex my belief is that there are there are a couple of things so first of all resap was a groundbreaking leading company that had done things that no one had done before in digital health and it set up process and importantly had set up processes to do so uh, and so we'd set up processes to run clinical trials very cheaply very quickly and get very high quality data. You know, it's something that, you know, someone like a, a Pfizer in, in the pharmaceutical game just does not do. Uh, and so, you know, I, I saw that our processes and the people who developed those processes and the people who ran those processes as really important for Pfizer. And Pfizer was starting to build out digital health and medicines. So they really saw that this was a growth area for pharmaceutical companies. There are a number of pharmaceutical companies globally starting to build out digital health and medicines tools. And so they saw ResApp somewhat as a way to bootstrap, kickstart their digital health and medicines group. We had the processes, we had some great people, and we could do that. So I think that was part of it. The technology was the other part. We, we had exciting technology. We had technology that really no one else in the world had. And, and you know, someone like Pfizer is not going to acquire a company that someone else is doing. And we'd proven it out from a science perspective. And I think that's really important. And I think people need to realize that digital health is still healthcare. It's still med tech. Uh, and so building out the science, getting the publications, um, getting high-quality scientists, getting high-quality clinicians involved in what you're doing is really important. And so you know, I, I would say that those sort of four factors were the, the key things for, for Pfizer looking at ResApp. It was the processes that we developed that no one had developed elsewhere in the world. The people who build those processes, the technology was unique and novel, solved some real problems, and it would build out a really solid science base. And to me, that those are the key reasons why the, the ResApp acquisition was so successful. Fair points. Again, back a little bit to the personal side. Uh, when you exit the company, it's maybe like your child leaving home, going to university. How did you feel when signing the contract? Uh, how did your team feel as well? That's a good question, yeah. And I probably haven't had time to look back on that until recently. I think it was excitement, but some trepidation. Pfizer's a very different company than a startup company of 15 people, so there was trepidation. But there was also excitement about what we could do with the resources that we now had. Um, and I think that's that was the really exciting thing. You know, we now had access to one of the largest companies in the world that had 
tens of thousands of people to help us take this technology forward. You know, we, we're used to running everything as lean as possible with a small number of people um, as quickly as we can to get a yes, no answer. We now had a massive organization behind us to, to really take this forward. So uh, yeah, a combination of excitement and some trepidation. Probably it wasn't easy. And um, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you also joined uh, Pfizer for a couple of uh, months as a VP president, probably uh, making the integration as a success. Um, how was this journey afterwards um, working for one of the largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world and uh, previously having led a, a startup? What were these uh, very kind of like uh, different perspectives what you have uh, seen in this uh, year, Tony? Yeah, look, that was a, a really exciting time. I mean, I'll say that you know that the time that I had at Pfizer was was very exciting. The integration of ResApp across into Pfizer systems had challenges, of course, as you can imagine. But yeah, it was exciting to work through those challenges and see how we could change things within Pfizer to to do them some things the ResApp way. Uh, it was also interesting to see some of the processes within Pfizer that that built up from tens of years of experience, hundreds potentially, and see how those processes could help what we were doing. So the integration was exciting, challenging but exciting. And then just seeing how a very large organization works, very different to how a, a small startup works. The times that we clashed, right? There were, during that integration period, there were there were clashes around culture. Um, but you know, it was it was just a very um, exciting time where we could see those differences and try to pick the best of both worlds to move this you know, new digital health and medicines unit forward at Pfizer, which was was exciting. It was exciting for me personally as well. I mean, meeting some of the people at Pfizer who are at you know the top echelons of business. You know, I had multiple meetings with the CEO of Pfizer, and just sort of seeing his attention to detail, his ability to think and understand things was amazing. So very much enjoyed that time. Very different to a, to a startup, but learned a lot and, and definitely will take a lot of those learnings forward. I can imagine it was a really steep learning curve and you were pretty busy. I'm sure you are busy right now. How did your identity change? Uh, you have been, you are an entrepreneur right now. Your uh, kid um, left home, um, is graduating soon from university, joining the big league. So how do you feel as an entrepreneur, Tony? And what's next? Yeah, so I think this was sort of what was on my mind a few months ago um, when I left Pfizer. So you know, I decided to, to, to leave Pfizer primarily because I wanted to continue to be an entrepreneur. And then, you know, I, I think in some ways job was done with ResApp. You know, we did what we set out to do. We achieved great success getting approvals. We achieved great success with partnerships. And then the acquisition itself was, was a great success. So, you know, leaving Pfizer and having a bit of a break, letting me think about what's next um, has sort of let me refine what's next as well. You know, I wasn't sure whether what, ne what next meant staying with Pfizer or whether it meant becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a, a, an investor or, or retiring on a beach, right? I mean, all of those are the sort of options that were in front of me. I think at heart, I, I like to get my hands dirty. I like to move things forward, make things happen. That's really what I'm starting to do. I'm starting to roll back into a couple of opportunities now. And again, taking a very entrepreneurial approach, working with what we've got to take things forward. And that's, that's really exciting. 
Fantastic. So we can assume very soon, maybe a new announcement on your venture or company that you are joining. Do you um, maybe even consider something like coaching, uh, teaching, um, uh, something joining a, a foundation? So not running a business, but more like helping the next generation to eventually be an entrepreneur or maybe taking a teaching gig, anything which is not close to the entrepreneurship, what you have been doing before. Yeah, I, I definitely have. Uh, I've been very much sitting here for the last couple of months looking at all the different opportunities. When I was at UniQuest, I actually did a number of coaching things. We had a, an accelerator program called iLab at the time where we helped entrepreneurs start companies and, and progress them through. Obviously, you know, once ResApp started, I was in the ResApp bubble, very focused on, on ResApp and focused on executing that company and moving that company forward. Um, now, as I step back from that, I'm definitely you know, talking to, to a number of people. I'm talking to some old colleagues who have started a new company as well and helping them you know, get things off the ground and helping them uh, review some business plans and things like that. So, look, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in a very open space at the moment where I'm you know, looking at what's next for me, but also trying to help others achieve some of the things that we achieved at ResApp. So there are many opportunities ahead of you. Fantastic. Final question in this uh, podcast, uh, Tony. What tips and what tricks, what advice you could uh, give to upcoming entrepreneurs in the digital health space? What were these learnings, what you have uh, made during the journey? I mean, I think the big one that we had was it was don't give up. You know, there were, as I said earlier, there were a number of times where we thought we were dead and we thought the company was dead, but we found a way through and I think if we had given up then, you know, none of the good things would have happened. So I think you know, that, that sort of resilience, that fortitude to continue going, to believe in what you're doing. Uh, and if you really believe in what you're doing, then you'll find a way through. I think that's really important. I think more sort of focused on the digital health side of things is don't, don't lose sight of the clinical side. The, the clinical side is really important. It's that clinical data. It's that clinical knowledge that's key. To taking that technology to the market, to an acquisition or to wherever. That science, that clinical results is really important. Great advice. Don't give up and don't underestimate the importance of clinical data. Tony, it was fantastic to have you on the show today. Thanks for sharing all your insights and wish you all the best with your new discovery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Care Captains on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.